If you like what you hear, come and visit me at youtube.com slash tiptoe the tank and see this content in all its glory. Walter. His dead-eyed stare set my teeth on edge. Is he a monster, a victim, or both? There's a story here, deep and rich and macabre. I won't tell you what to think. It's up to you to form an opinion of Walter Sullivan, but we need to talk about him. Where he started, to where he ended. To say Walter Sullivan's life began with trouble would be an understatement. In 1967, he was birthed in room 302 at South Ashfield Heights Apartments, and he was left there, abandoned. His mother was passive, unspeaking in his memories, his father an antagonizing abuser. They had their reasons, I'm sure, but none of them valid, to leave a baby in an apartment, a defenseless little being, left behind like trash. How pathetic. But Walter was found by the superintendent of the building, a man named Frank Sunderland, and taken to a nearby hospital, St. Jerome's. Though he didn't keep any contact with the baby, Frank Sunderland kept little Walter's umbilical cord, feeling it was something special. He couldn't bring himself to dispose of it. The room in which Walter was born, room 302, remarkably kept a place within the mind of the child, nestled into a place that was intended for his mother. Walter began life at an extreme disadvantage. Yes, thankfully Frank Sunderland found him and did right by the child, but that's really where the positivity stopped. Walter was given over to the Wish House, an orphanage on the outskirts of the town called Silent Hill. An orphanage run by the Order, a cult with deep roots in Silent Hill, composed of sects who vary in practices yet work towards the same dark goal bring about and or greet the apocalypse so that their faithful may be ushered into paradise. They long for the birth of a god, a true god, their god, born of suffering and chaos. They will do whatever is required of them to achieve this according to the belief of their sect, in alignment with the overall goals of the order. In this particular case, in Walter's case, in the case of the Wish House Orphanage, it is the sect of the Holy Mother who is behind these happenings. The sect of the Holy Mother believes that God, who they call the Holy Mother, will be born into the world through a conjurer performing the 21 sacraments for the descent of the Holy Mother. We'll just call it the 21 sacraments. The sect of the Holy Mother uses the orphanage as a means to obtain children, to raise them with the teachings of the sect. This accomplished using fear and torture tactics to break the children down take away their desire to fight against their captors, indoctrinate them under penalty of pain should they perform poorly, isolate them from the outside world, and teach them that it is a place to be feared, kill them if need be, with no pain of consequence for doing so. They even had their own prison for the children who misbehaved or performed inadequately. This is where little Walter was raised. This is his life. As soon as Walter can read, as soon as any of the children at Wish House can read, they were forced into reading the Order's Gospels and Scriptures. When Walter was six years old, a woman came to visit the orphanage, a woman named Dahlia. 
and Dahlia told little Walter that if he did a good job in reading the 21 sacraments, that he would see his mother again. How sweet. If I may, take a moment and read to you just what the 21 sacraments is. The first sign, and God said, At the time of fullness, cleanse the world with my rage. Gather forth the white oil, the black cup, and the blood of the ten sinners. Prepare for the ritual of the holy assumption. The second sign, and God said, Offer the blood of the ten sinners and the white oil. Be then released from the bonds of the flesh and gain the power of heaven. From the darkness and void, bring forth gloom, and gird thyself with despair for the giver of wisdom. The third sign, and God said, Return to the source through sin's temptation. Under the watchful eye of the demon, wander alone in the formless chaos. Only then will the four atonements be in alignment. The last sign, and God said, Separate from the flesh too, she who is the mother reborn, and he who is the receiver of wisdom. If this be done, by the mystery of the twenty-one sacraments, the mother shall be reborn, and the nation of sin shall be redeemed. Don't worry, you don't have to memorize it. When Dahlia told little Walter that reading the twenty-one sacraments could reunite him with his mother, the young boy remembered that apartment room that he was born into, room 302. He had no education on his own past, he had no reason to doubt his own beliefs, and no one clarified what was meant by Dahlia's message. So, Walter believed that room 302, the physical room, must be his mother. The children were raised under fear, they were abused, and so he never mentioned his newly realized logic to an authority figure, not that it really would have mattered if he had. The sect very well could have just used that to their advantage. But soon after this fateful visit, little Walter began to take the initiative to sneak away every week back to South Ashfield Heights in an effort to talk to or see his supposed mother, room 302. It was a long trip for a little guy to make on his own, but week after week, he did it. Sometimes he would get caught and beaten at the wish house. Walter especially hated a man there named Andrew DeSalvo. Andrew DeSalvo made Walter's friend disappear. Andrew DeSalvo guarded the prison used by the orphanage. Andrew DeSalvo was a monster. Walter met people on the public transits that were unkind to him, girls who would say mean things. Tenants at the building began to notice the boy skulking about, trying to look in the building. One tenant in particular, Richard Braintree, frightened Walter. Richard Braintree had a history of violent outbursts towards others. He even began to threaten and hurt Walter as a child when Walter came around the complex. These experiences cemented in the boy's mind that people were obstacles and sources of suffering. It was a dangerous foundation that just became stronger over time. Walter just wanted his mother so, so badly. He didn't know any better. No one taught him any better. He diligently studied the 21 sacraments in an effort to alleviate that pain, to fill that empty hole in his heart, the logic of a child. Because of the abuse, isolation, and indoctrination of the sect of the Holy Mother, Walter's misguided belief in his mother's identity never went away. As Walter aged and studied the 21 sacraments under the watchful eye of a man named George Roston, a darkness 
overtook the boy. George Roston was a priest of the sect of the Holy Mother, the overseer of the Wish House Orphanage, and a companion to a priest of the Valtiel sect of the Order, a man named Jimmy Stone. Under Jimmy Stone's order, George Roston began to groom Walter to be the conjurer that would bring their god to life. The darkness that crept into Walter was that of Valtiel itself, a demon, an unholy presence, a servant of their supposed god. George Roston was responsible for this, responsible for placing this evil upon Walter. Jimmy Stone was responsible for this, responsible for placing this evil upon Walter. Dahlia was responsible. Andrew DeSalvo was responsible. This cult, the Order, was responsible. What I still struggle with is how responsible was Walter himself? Where did Walter end and Valtiel begin? And I know that's a very complicated question given his childhood. There's probably no single correct answer. Perhaps a sliding scale of life experiences, so I'll just tell the story. And please share your thoughts if you feel so inclined. Travel between the orphanage and South Ashfield Heights became harder as Walter got older as he grew into a young man. He couldn't just sneak onto the subway anymore, and he had no resources to help in the trip, so he would panhandle for money to pay the fare or sleep on the streets or in the subway system during his trips. Walter is not well socialized. He looks filthy, he's skittish and standoffish. He's never been anything other than ostracized from society. Passerbys ignored the young man or outright avoided going near him. During one such night, when Walter lay bundled in the streets, a small, five-year-old girl approached him. She felt sorry for him. He looked so sad and lonely. This little girl, Eileen Galvin, gave the teenage Walter her doll, defying her mother's order to stay away from Walter. And imagine how this would feel. For the first time in his life, someone approached Walter and showed him kindness and regard. Someone acknowledged his pain and his loneliness. Someone gave him a gift. How profound and how beautiful. This wasn't lost on Walter. He wasn't that far gone at this point. He wept because of the gesture. He remembered that little girl, Eileen Galvin. He wouldn't forget her. Walter's eye was caught by a beautiful teenager named Cynthia Velasquez when he traveled through the South Ashfield subway station. He'd watched her, always from a distance, watched her grow from a child into a teenager, watched her for a decade, until he got up the courage to approach Cynthia. She was 13 and he was nearly 18. She'd seen Walter around the station a number of times. She'd noticed his stare, but just ignored the filthy person. She'd grown into a wild child, the kind of teenager that frequented adult nightclubs the kind of teenager with a sassy attitude and a smart mouth. When Walter approached her, she immediately began a coy line of questioning, asking why he was approaching her all of a sudden, remarking that while he's handsome enough, that doesn't mean she's interested in him. And when Walter awkwardly begins to speak of room 302, he slips that he knows her name, that he's been watching her for a decade, and Cynthia immediately faces the situation even though her friends are trying to run away from it. Where are you from? How do you know my name? You've been eavesdropping on us for 10 years. 
but she doesn't let anything slip by and very bluntly rejects Walter's approach. It's unfortunate for Walter. He never learned how to talk to girls about age differences, how to approach someone. He's honestly a social idiot. But it's not up to Cynthia to decipher that. She must be her own best protector. It's just an unfortunate situation. One that Walter will remember. He won't forget Cynthia. When Walter turned 18 the following year, he left the Wish House Orphanage and for a while lived a normal life as a college student. At least a few years. But he couldn't shake the need to wake up his mother. He couldn't abandon what he learned of the 21 sacraments. There was still the, the embedded influence of Valtiel within Walter. He became hardened from resentments and sadness. He came to despise society and remembered all of the rejections he'd faced growing up. The faceless masses that ignored his pleas for their change when he begged on the streets, Cynthia's rejection of his approach, the tenants at the South Ashfield Heights apartment complex, Walter remembered all of it. He added it all into a sick equation of abuse, rejection, hatred, and desire. Where did Walter end and Valtiel begin? As a young man in his early 20s, he found that a normal life would not suit him. He wanted his mother. He hated the world. In 1991, at the age of 24, Walter Sullivan began the 21 sacraments. The first sign, and God said, At the time of fullness, cleanse the world with my rage. Gather forth the white oil, the black cup, and the blood of the ten sinners. Prepare for the ritual of the Holy Assumption. Ten murders in ten days. Ten sinners for ten hearts. Victim one of twenty-one was the priest of the Valtiel sect, Jimmy Stone, the man who had ordered Walter Sullivan's indoctrination and grooming as a child. He shot him in the back of the head and dug out his heart. Victim two and three of twenty-one were high school students who became too curious about the order. Victim four of twenty-one was a pet shop owner and all the animals in his shop. Victim 5 of 21 was the manager of a sporting goods store. George Roston was 6 of 21, the priest that helped raise Walter and taught him the 21 sacraments. Twin siblings, children named Billy and Miriam Locaine, became victims 7 and 8 of 21. Miriam was Walter's first female victim, who he particularly brutalized. Nine of 21 was a clock store owner, and finally, victim 10 of 21 was a bartender. All of these people Walter cut the hearts from. They would be needed for the ritual of holy assumption. Speaking of which, Walter was caught soon after the final murder. It was the murder of the twins, Miriam and Billy, that did him in. The police announced today that Walter Sullivan, who was arrested on the 18th of this month for the brutal murder of Billy Locaine and his sister Miriam, committed suicide in his jail cell early on the morning of the 22nd. According to the police statement, Sullivan used a soup spoon to stab himself in the neck, severing his carotid artery. By the time the guard discovered him, Sullivan was dead from blood loss, and the spoon buried two inches in his neck. An old schoolmate of Walter Sullivan's from his hometown of Pleasant River said, 
He didn't look like the type of guy who would kill kids. But I do remember that just before they arrested him, he was blurting out all sorts of strange stuff, like, He's trying to kill me. He's trying to punish me. The monster, the red devil. Forgive me. I did it. But it wasn't me. The schoolmate then added, I guess now that I think of it, he was kind of crazy. He's trying to punish me. The monster. The red devil. Forgive me. I did it. But it wasn't me. Interesting. It's the final time we hear about remorse from Walter Sullivan. As the death report stated, Walter killed himself in prison, and here we have a few more questions. Because just a few days later, the tenants of South Ashfield Heights saw Walter in the building, going towards room 302, with the reagents for the Ritual of Holy Assumption, the black cup, the white oil, and a bloody bag. Richard Braintree saw him in room 302, doing something he couldn't quite make out. Frank Sunderland also saw Walter in the building and saw signs that someone had been in room 302, but, well, Walter killed himself in prison, right? How did he suddenly rise from the grave a few days later? Well, there are a few options here. It could be that it wasn't Walter Sullivan in prison. It could be that the corpse itself wasn't Walter Sullivan. Perhaps Walter Sullivan did rise from the dead. It could be the order intervened to remove him from custody and staged a suicide. When investigated a few years later, the coffin Walter was buried in was empty, and on the outside was the marking 11 of 21. What? What happened in that room? What did Walter Sullivan do in room 302 after his supposed suicide? The second sign. And God said, Offer the blood of the ten sinners and the white oil. Be then released from the bonds of the flesh and gain the power of heaven. From the darkness and void, bring forth gloom, and gird thyself with despair for the giver of wisdom. In the storage area of room 302, Walter Sullivan embedded 11 of 21 into his feet, performed the ritual of holy assumption, and crucified himself. This created the dark other world of Walter Sullivan. Walter cast aside his mortal body to walk freely in this new plane as the eleventh sacrament, to await the giver of wisdom. Frank Sunderland, the building super, and future tenants of room 302 make no mention of a crucified corpse in their storage room. There's no mention of the smell of decay permeating the apartment, implying that Walter Sullivan's corpse also now exists in this other world. For three years, there's peace. Walter Sullivan became a boogeyman of the past. The third sign, and God said, Return to the source through sin's temptation. Under the watchful eye of the demon, wander alone in the formless chaos. Only then will the four atonements be in alignment. In 1994, he came back. Four more were needed. Four atonements to be in alignment. Though these killings would not take place in rapid succession, they would cross four years, beginning with victim 12 of 21, a pot dealer whose body wouldn't be found for six months after his death. He represented the void. In 1997, before the death of victim 13, a journalist named Joseph Scriber, began to investigate the Walter Sullivan murders from 1991. He had quite a vested interest in uncovering the truth 
behind the order. Joseph Scriber moved into room 302 to do this. He interacted with residents of South Ashfield Heights to ask questions. By April of 1998, he felt so ill at ease and in fear for his safety that he began to make personal records to detail his experiences and what he'd learned of the Walter Sullivan case. He approached this investigation from a logical perspective. He could not have known of Walter's other world and the overlap of Walter's corpse existing in the storage area of the apartment. Joseph Scriber says that as soon as victim 12 of 21 was found, he knew that something was extremely wrong with the situation. He knew the story of Walter Sullivan and the discovery of victim 12 disturbed him greatly. By this year, a now adult Eileen Galvin is also living in the complex in room 303. Over the course of two months, Joseph Scriber pieces together that the murder of number 12 is certainly linked to Walter somehow. The MOs are exactly the same, and victim 13 of 21 has been discovered. An older woman who refused to join the order, though her family was deeply entrenched in it. She represented darkness. The only differences between the cases of 1991 and the current murders being investigated are that the hearts weren't taken from victims 12 and 13. We know that, well, Walter doesn't need them anymore. Walter only needed the hearts to complete his ritual of assumption, to create his dark other world, but Joseph Scriber doesn't know this. He couldn't possibly know this. A few days after victim 13 was found, Joseph Scriber led the investigation towards Walter's grave after his supposed suicide in 1991 just to find it empty and 11 of 21 etched into it. By July of 1998, just a month after finding the empty coffin, Joseph Scriber's fears escalated. He doesn't refer to Walter by name, but he's so afraid of him. His power cannot be measured. Joseph Scriber seals off his storage room, but does he know why? Something about that room frightens him. And Joseph Scriber worries over Eileen Galvin, his neighbor. He records... She has no idea what's going on, but she's in danger nevertheless. Joseph Scriber knows that Walter didn't actually die in that prison, that he did something in room 302 back in 1991, that it's all linked, and that Walter himself is actually nearby, somewhere. On July 20th, hell begins to seep into his world, and for the first time, Joseph Scriber writes about the other world of Walter Sullivan. It's a horrible nightmare. If you get pulled in, you'll be killed, he warns in his letters to no one. He believes the answer to Walter Sullivan lies deep within that other world, deep within Walter himself, where the ultimate truth lies. The other world is Walter's warped manifestation of the world, nightmarish renditions of important places from his past inhabited by his perceptions of his victims and of mankind. Though Joseph Scriber remains confined to room 302, there he wards off ghosts as best as he can, past victims of Walter who try to break into the room through hauntings. The room changes on August 2nd, 1998, into a bloodied, rust-embedded perversion of the room. Joseph Scriber can barely hold on to his own sanity as he tries to figure out what is happening, as he worries over Eileen and deciphers that 
She will be the mother's body in the rebirth of future victim. On August 7, 1998, Joseph Scriber wrote the names of all future victims of Walter Sullivan and their roles in the 21 sacraments. Victim 14 of 21 is claimed, a priest of the sect of the Holy Mother, Toby Archibald, who represented Gloom, and soon after, 15 of 21 was taken. Joseph Scriber himself, who was despair. Joseph Scriber died in room 302, trapped in Walter's other world, but in the real world, it was called a disappearance. There was nothing left behind in room 302 in the waking world that could tell anyone what had befallen Joseph Scriber. So, six months later, a new tenant moved into room 302, a young buck named Henry Townsend. And for about two years, he lives there in peace. Nothing weird about it. Eileen Galvin is his neighbor. No one notices the sealed-off storage room in the apartment. It just looks like another wall. Frank Sunderland seems to have been quite bothered by Joseph Scriber's disappearance, but for a time, things just go on as normal. That is, until early 2001, when Henry suddenly can't leave his apartment. He can't open his windows. Massive chains seal his front door shut from the inside with a cute message from Walter telling him not to leave. He can't seem to get anyone's attention, no matter how much he bangs on the walls, no matter how much he yells and screams. He has nightmares, one of them being the memories of Joseph Scriber walking through the bloodied and rust-embedded room 302 as hauntings commence. Congratulations! We're now at the beginning of the game. Firm handshakes. After five days, something finally changes. A large hole gets blown out in his bathroom. A weird letter about the world of our Lord being in flux and unexpected doors or walls, odd creatures that only he can control, appears behind his bookshelf. And a letter appears under his door. Mom, why don't you wake up? Henry looks outside to see Cynthia Velasquez walking into the subway system. So, into the weird hole Henry goes. Coming out in the South Ashfield subway station, where Cynthia is. And as soon as she sees Henry, she goes to him, playing the situation cool and coy as is in her nature. But her words and body language betrays that she's afraid. This is like a terrible dream to her. She latches on to Henry as a source of help, promising that if he helps her, well, she'll do him a special favor. This seems to be a tactic to just get an ally. Promises for sex can work on some men. She's frightened and she needs help. This isn't a woman who's horny in the other world. She's terrified. Cynthia falls ill, going into a bathroom to vomit, and the two become separated when Cynthia doesn't come back out. Henry trots about the station, coming face to face with some of the amalgamations that live in Walter's warped otherworld, finally coming back into contact with Cynthia and tracking her down after she screams that he is coming for her. But it's already far too late. Walter is there. He stabbed her repeatedly, bringing her to the brink of death, something she could not survive, and he left her there for Henry to find. Cynthia's death is heartbreaking. Her worst fear came true. She is victim 16 of 21, 
Her death theme was temptation. Walter never forgot Cynthia after all these years. Henry goes back to his apartment, leaving this place behind for now. In his living room stereo, he hears police talking about Cynthia's death and the number carved into her chest. She died in the other world, therefore she's dead in reality as well. More notes from Joseph Scriber appear at the chained door of the apartment, revealing out of sequence tidbits of information to help Henry as he goes. A small hole in the wall is revealed as well, a rather voyeuristic feature, presumably created by Joseph Scriber as he lost touch with reality to keep an eye on Eileen next door. When Henry goes back to the bathroom, it's weird. The hole in the wall is bigger now. So back in he goes, this time landing near the Wish House Orphanage, the place where Walter grew up. Hanging around the Nakihona, or the Mother Stone, is a fellow named Jasper Geen, who seems oddly knowledgeable in regards to the large stone and at least aware of the Order's existence within the Wish House. Jasper, in fact, has a connection to this place and even to Walter. Jasper was a friend of Victims 2 and 3 before Walter got a hold of them. Jasper was too afraid of the cults and the forest around the Wish House to investigate the place. Victims 2 and 3 were not, and they paid the price. Now, all these years later, Jasper is here. And who else should we happen across here but little Walter? He couldn't be older than seven years old. He's just a tiny guy. And when Jasper sees the little dude, he's, he's real excited about the third revelation coming to pass. Jasper had previously had contact with Joseph Scriber, who told Jasper Geen about the third sign that was taking place when Joseph Scriber was still alive back in 1998. Joseph Scriber gave Jasper a spade to save for a later time, which Henry just so happens to need. Joseph Scriber seems to have been a bit of a puppet master. Anyways, Walter sets Jasper on fire. And when Henry arrives to witness the immolation, Jasper doesn't really seem emotionally distraught over the whole situation. He screams about getting to meet the Red Devil and carves 17 of 21 into his chest as he burns alive. Jasper Gein's death theme was Source. By now, Eileen has noticed the lack of activity from Henry's apartment, implying that it's out of character for Henry to shut himself in. She talks to Frank Sunderland about it too, who immediately jumps into action, trying to get Henry to respond to him through the door, then attempting to unlock it with his keys, but the door won't open. Shortly after, Eileen begins taking swipes at something in the hallway, looks a bit like punch dancing, but not the fun kind. And Richard Raintree, the resident psychopath abuser of the complex, has also begun to take notice of Henry's apartment. The influence of Room 302, the influence of Walter's Otherworld, is seeping just beyond the room. The ever-growing hole in Henry's bathroom takes him to the Water Tower prison near the Wish House that the sect of the Holy Mother used to imprison and punish children. Pulled into this other world is Andrew DuSalvo, remember him? Though he wasn't a part of the cult, he was employed at the Wish House as a prison guard at the Water Tower Prison. Andrew DeSalvo beat and terrorized the children submitted into his care. 
Notes scattered around the prison indicated that Walter spent his fair share of time in Andrew DeSalvo's care, and he despised the man. His presence in Walter's other world is no surprise, and that he's an intended victim of Walter Sullivan is no surprise. Andrew DeSalvo was so uncaring and vile towards the victims of the Wish House, and when faced with the impending rage of Walter Sullivan, he begs for help and frets over how he is going to be killed. Not long after he's released from his own cell, Andrew DeSalvo is wordlessly confronted by little Walter. In conversation with Henry, he takes no responsibility for his own role in what happened in this place, referring to the actions and beliefs of the cult instead. Not that taking responsibility would have made a difference at this point. Walter drowns him in the prison and carves 18 of 21 into his gullet. Andrew DeSalvo's death theme was watchfulness. A real tearjerker, that one. Frank and Eileen are still worried over Henry when he returns to room 302. They're not giving up on their suspicion of something being extremely wrong. Frank remarks that it's not the first time that this has happened, and Eileen remembers Joseph Scriber. Frank's commentary on the entirety of the apartment being unusual sets the woman on edge. Furthermore, Frank starts to talk about the umbilical cord he kept from baby Walter some 34 years ago, and how rancid it's begun to smell, which is a real weird thing to drop on Eileen, Frank, and it's kind of gross. Speaking of gross, Henry's bathtub is also covered in blood, and the hole in the wall is even larger at this point. Deeper into the other world, Henry finds himself in a maze of buildings, places important to Walter, here is the pet store, where he claimed victim four and killed all the animals in the store. There's a sporting good room, where he claimed victim number five. A bar, where Walter found victim number ten. And here also is a replica of apartment room 207, where Richard Braintree resides. When Walter was a child, Richard Braintree frightened him. Braintree was cruel to the boy, mistreated him whenever he came around the building to try and see room 302. He once saw the aftermath of Richard Braintree beating a man who was stalking a woman and thought that Braintree had skinned the man alive. Braintree was out of control when his temper flared, so certainly, yes, he was a scary man, and now Walter Sullivan has him. And we know what happens in Walter's other world. Henry tracks Richard down in the replica of room 207 and watches him cook alive in an electric chair with 19 of 21 carved into his forehead. Richard Braintree's death theme was chaos, though before he dies, Richard manages to get out that he knows Walter is 11 of 21. Back in room 302, Frank Sunderland is now acting weird in the hallway. Eileen is dressed for a party, but pacing back and forth nervously in her apartment, something is bothering her. Symbols are beginning to appear around the growing hole in Henry's bathroom. The authorities, talking about Braintree's death over the radio, are calling the deaths copycat killings, and now there's a weird man in Richard Braintree's apartment pointing at Eileen's room. Going back through the hole in the bathroom once again, Henry finds a bloodied version of the South Ashfield Heights apartment complex. Furthermore, an adult Walter Sullivan is here, at first knocking on room 303, then sitting out on the stairwell, holding that doll 
Eileen gave to him when she was five years old. It's Henry's first conversation with the grown Walter, and he is just not right. He's covered in blood, filthy, dead-eyed, and far too calm. He offers Henry the doll, which seems like a weirdly thoughtful gesture. <clears throat> it's not. Henry follows the breadcrumbs laid out for him and gets access to room 303, where Eileen Galvin resides in the normal world. To find the young woman beaten nearly to death, it's like, it's like watching Cynthia struggle and suffer all over again. 20 of 21 is carved into her back, but little Walter is there, standing over her. Eileen thanks the boy, and even in her awful state, expresses concern for his well-being. When Walter Sullivan attacked Eileen, intent on claiming her as victim 20, the child version of himself intervened to stop the attack. It looks like he just barely made it in time. So there is something good that still exists from Walter in this child form. It's small and weak, but it's still there, and it made a difference here. The little guy saved Eileen. Back in room 302, Henry overhears from his radio that while Eileen was found alive, it's unlikely that she can survive the injuries she's sustained. Police in her room converse over the lack of evidence left behind, the similarities from the Walter Sullivan case from 1991, and the perplexing nature of the copycat killings. There were differences, but significant similarities. Within room 302, those hauntings experienced by Joseph Scriber are beginning to creep in. The dryer spewed blood up the wall and floor. Cryptic writing appears in his washroom wall. The pink bunny in Eileen's room is pointing at the voyeur hole in the wall. And the hole in his bathroom is completely sealed now. Using plates from different parts of the other world, Henry opens a new, fully formed hole back to the other world in his washroom. And now, we go to St. Jerome's Hospital, where Eileen is being treated in the waking world, and where Walter Sullivan was taken as a baby by Frank Sunderland before being turned over to the custody of the order at the Wish House Orphanage. Walter is here upon Henry's arrival, shoving his hands into the bloody guts of a female mannequin. And now he's behaving in a hostile manner. Walter's true colors are showing. Eileen is here, but she's already marked for death. She can't leave like Henry can through the portals. Her arm is broken, she has one usable eye, and she's in high heels. But the girl has spirit and drive. Henry returns to room 302 once they've reached a dead end at St. Jerome's Hospital and receives a note from Joseph Scriber, reminding him that to die in the other world means death in the real world and gifts Harry a small key to traverse deeper through the hospital. There's no safe place to take Eileen. She can't go back to room 302, so the duo must now travel together through the deepest parts of Walter Sullivan to find the ultimate truth to stop his madness. It's the only possible escape either of them have. Through each otherworldly place they go, back to the South Ashfield subway system where Cynthia was so brutally killed, where Cynthia now resides, and begins her hauntings of Henry and Eileen. Then, to the Wish House orphanage where the burning ghost of Jasper Geen chases them. 
where Walter himself becomes violent and begins his hunt. Deeper down they go, unlocking parts of Walter. Through the water tower prison, where Henry skewers the apparition of Andrew DeSalvo. Back to the maze world of buildings, where Richard Braintree glitches about, where so many murders took place at the hands of Walter Sullivan. Here, the grown, violent Walter finally corners his younger self and abducts the child. But still yet, there are obstacles to be faced when Henry and Eileen must contend with the guardian of Walter's deepest secrets, the being called the One Truth. Of all the beings that reside within the room, only one is the true being. Good luck finding it. Lies abound around the truth. It's frustrating. It's deceptive. It's enraging after repeated failures to find the source. It's a hard room to travel. But it's befitting the absolute muck that lie upon lie can bring to protect the truth. The reward for this isn't some monologue from Walter or a member of the cult who pops up out of the shadow to explain their dastardly deed, to make Walter a sympathetic monster, to apply logics to their actions. It's the truth as told by Joseph Scriber. He lays the situation out very clearly. Where Walter came from, what he wants to accomplish, what comes next, and how to stop him. Kill Walter. Find his true self in the depths of the other world and kill him. Otherwise, they're next. Victims 20 and 21. At this point, in regards to Walter, don't try to understand him. Don't try to change him. Don't try to reason with him. Kill him. He's a sick, wild animal that's attacking the homestead. What else can be done? If it makes it easier to accept, think of it as mercy, but kill him. Joseph Scriber sends them on their way with a pickaxe embedded in the back wall. Returning to room 302, in the proper time and place, Henry is able to use the pickaxe to break down the wall Joseph Scriber erected to seal the storage room of the apartment. Inside, in this in-between world Henry is trapped in, is the crucified corpse of a long-dead Walter Sullivan. Delightful. A real relic from the past. Unfortunately, Henry can't kill a cadaver, so on he goes, finding in the corpse's pocket a set of keys. Henry has been locked in that apartment for five days now, and finally he has the keys to get out. Except, Walter's other world has consumed this place for Henry and Eileen. This is just another level. Six memories of Walter's father reside here. Memories from just before he was abandoned, or at least... Walter's imagined memories of the situation. The events and creations of this other world are representative of how Walter has perceived or interpreted events. Did Walter's father actually maliciously bully his mother into abandoning Walter, or was it easier for Walter to fill in the blank with that narrative? Amidst these memories or recollections, why does Walter's mother never respond to the taunts of his father aloud? It opens up the question, who really were Walter's parents? Or were these memories implanted by the demon Valtiel? It's worth toying with the idea, because the answer could impact the role that the Order really played in Walter's development. Was he chosen from birth? Was his imprint on room 302 
a fortunate or controlled event, where his parents are part of the order fleeing after his mother got pregnant. Dahlia tells Walter when he was a child that if he studies the 21 sacraments, then his mother will be woken up in Ashfield, implying that she's dead. But how would Dahlia know that Walter's mother is dead, or is Dahlia trying to manipulate the situation in regards to room 302? Is she just being manipulative in general and lying to him, telling him his mother is dead in order to control a sad, lonely child? And I know that's a lot of questions to drop, a lot of hypothetical questions, but have fun with it. Or tell me what you found that clarifies the situation. Moving along though, confronting each of these memories of Walter's awful father leads Henry on to Frank Sunderland's room where the umbilical cord is. According to the Crimson Tome, the article clarifying Walter's undoing, uniting the conjurer's flesh with the true body of the conjurer and piercing his body with eight spears of the Holy Mother will make Walter vulnerable within his own hellscape otherworld. Eileen seems to lose herself here. Overtaken by possession at the hands of Walter Sullivan, she says she is going back to where Walter is. They're the only ones who can stop him now. In the deepest part of Walter's other world, he is a monstrous being, skin pulling from his body, hanging from hooks, mindlessly screaming at Henry when he approaches. It's the representation of Walter, the conjurer, deep in room 302, the place he sees as his mother. What an ugly, malformed thing he is, but tarry about it and risk losing Eileen. At this point, she's under the control of Walter and walking towards her own doom. The goal is to claim both of their lives, after all. Her survival is dependent upon your choices and your speed. Rejoining the conjurer with the umbilical cord and piercing it with the eight spheres of the Holy Mother brings you into direct combat with the Walter Sullivan that has been harassing Henry and Eileen for nearly half their journey. But this time, killing him results in true death. Walter laughs and sneers at Henry. Eileen mindlessly walks closer to a crushing death with each missed melee hit, with each shot that Walter sidesteps. So, did you make it? Did you save Eileen? Did you stop the 21 sacraments? Well, this time around, Henry did. It took a couple of tries, but he got it. Walter called out to his mother in his final moment. Up until the end, his motivations were true. Once he began the 21 sacraments, he never doubted, never gave up. He wanted his mother so badly that he was willing to do anything to find that peace. He'd been indoctrinated to believe that it was possible, but he never found his peace. It was just a life of pain, rejection, loneliness, brainwashing, and violence. Henry and Eileen made it out. Eileen made a remarkable recovery after Walter's death. And the two are free to find their own way forward now.